So yesterday in the Helvig household, we had a birthday party for my five-year-old daughter, Naomi. Always guaranteed to be a good time when you have a bunch of five-year-olds running around in the backyard. As you might know, because I'm guessing many of you might have somewhere around a five-year-old in your home, or maybe you had a kid who was five at one point in their life. When there's a group of five-year-olds, there is lots of laughter, there is lots of energy, there's lots of screaming and playing and all sorts of activity. However, there's another thing that's almost guaranteed to happen uh, also when you have a group of five-year-olds running around. You're almost guaranteed to hear one of them say something like, that's not fair when they don't get as much candy from the pinata as they think they should have. Or they might say somebody like, he hit me, or she pushed me, or they knocked me down when they feel like somehow they've been treated wrongly or they've been injured. It's always fascinating because if you spend enough time around little kids, you quite quickly found out, find out that they have built into them an inherent and a passionate awareness of today's topic for the sermon. An awareness of what we often call justice. Or, maybe more accurately, they have an awareness of unjust activity, of injustice. Anytime something feels like it's not fair or not right or they've been mistreated, they are going to let you know. Well, we're in a sermon series right now called That'll Leave a Mark. We call it that because... The Greek word for character originally meant to leave a mark or make an engraving or an impression. And here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to let God make an impression, leave a mark on our lives so that the way that we leave a mark on the lives of others looks more and more and more like the way God would like us to leave a mark on the lives of others. And the topic that we're going to talk about is what does it mean to be people formed and committed to the justice that we see God talking about, working towards, and desiring in this world from time past, in the present, and into the future. As always, we've got three questions we're going to ask. What is justice? Why does justice matter? And how do I form justice in my heart in my life, in my mind, and in the actions of my daily life. Let's start with the first question. What is justice? I've really enjoyed just looking up and reading some dictionary entries and kind of getting our base starting line for answering these questions. So here's three definitions that I found that are a starting point for understanding what is justice. Just behavior or treatment. The quality of being fair or reasonable, the administration of the law or authority in maintaining this. But again, as we've said in the past few weeks, these dictionary definitions are a good starting point, but all too often, and maybe we should just expect this, what God shows us in his word, specifically what Jesus shows us in the way he lived his life, is something that goes beyond what we're likely to ever find in a dictionary. The story that we're going to read today uh, comes from the Gospel of John, the fourth chapter, and it's a story of a conversation that Jesus has with a woman who is from a people group called 
the Samaritans. And I'm going to read through the first half of that story in just a second, but I want to first give you the context. So a couple things about this story. First of all, in this story, Jesus doesn't talk about justice. It's not a monologue on justice. It's not a sermon on justice. Rather, I believe that this story is Jesus living out a biblical vision of justice. So as we see Jesus have this conversation, we're going to reflect on what his words and actions tell us about how he understands justice in his world. Second, I just want to provide a couple other contextual notes. Jesus is traveling north to the northern part of Israel. He's becoming quite well known in his ministry. He's got some followers. His disciples are baptizing people, and so his following is growing. But he's hoping to get out into a slightly more remote part of the country. And the text tells us he had to go through Samaria. Now, the interesting thing is that, A, he didn't have to go through Samaria. He could have taken a different road. He chose to go through Samaria. But B, we find out from the author, and go and read John 4 right now if you want. Read the whole thing uh, to give you the context. But we find out from the author that Jews and Samaritans, historically, do not get along. They are enemies. They are opposed to one another. Actually, there's a neat little literary feature. Whenever you're reading the Gospel of John, there's a bunch of times where the author puts parentheses around words. And to help you understand why those parentheses are, uh, you can almost think of, imagine, the words in the parentheses are the author whispering some context to you. So in the beginning of John 4, the author says, because Jews and Samaritans don't associate with one another. The author just wants to let you in on some background knowledge. You'll see it throughout the gospel. It's really interesting. Look for it. Well, so Jesus, he's in Samaria, and he comes to a well. You know, you need a bucket, you lower it down, you get water, it's a hot day, he's thirsty. He comes to a well, and he meets at this well a Samaritan woman. And sure enough, Jesus strikes up a little water cooler conversation with this woman. And right off the bat, they start talking about water. Jesus likes to do this. He likes to take whatever he's standing in front of and let it be a starting point for conversation. Well, the woman notices that Jesus is standing there, but he doesn't have a bucket. And if you're standing at a well and you don't have a bucket, all you're doing is getting a sunburn. And so she says to him, hey, you know, hey man, you don't, you don't have a bucket. Like, how are you going to get water? And Jesus takes this opportunity to change the direction of the conversation and move from a discussion of literal water to a discussion of metaphorical water. But whereas Jesus makes this first transition, the conversation just takes these other bizarre twists and turns that are going to cause us to have to do a little bit of work together this morning. But let's start by reading together the Gospel of John, chapter 4, starting in verse 14. I'm going to read through a bunch of the story straight through together, and then we'll talk about it. John 4, 14. Jesus says, Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, 
Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. (laughs) Okay, so this is one of the more bizarre conversations in my mind that Jesus has with anybody throughout the New Testament. And I want to pause right now and just acknowledge Jesus started talking with a woman about physical water, and then he changed and he talked medically, metaphorically with her about spiritual water, and she seemed interested, but then Jesus asked her about her husband and said to her that she's actually had five husband, husbands and she's with a man who isn't her husband. Jesus, this is not water cooler conversation, but she seems to roll with it and she says, okay, well, tell me about where I should worship, on a mountain or in Jerusalem. I mean, I have a hard time keeping up with all the twists and turns. And now that this woman has asked Jesus this question about how to worship, I find myself scratching my head saying, how will Jesus respond? I mean, we've brought up so many different topics now. How is Jesus going to respond? What's the next step in this already confusing conversation. And even more importantly, you might be asking, Carl, what does any of this have to do with justice? Well, I want to suggest at least two things, two sources, two kind of background pieces of information that might have been a guide for how Jesus would respond. So Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. There's clearly a history of tension between these people. And then it comes up that she's had five husbands, but she's now with a man. We don't know what that means, but she's with a man who's not her husband. And then she asks about worship. So there's many topics on the table. What's Jesus going to say? Where's the conversation going to go? Well, the first piece of background that could inform Jesus' response would be the Old Testament law. I bring this up because any discussion of justice has to include some conversation about what is right and wrong, what is uh, uh, just behavior or unjust behavior, what crimes are and what punishments they deserve. And one possible interpretation of this conversation would be, and some people have guessed, maybe this woman was an adulteress. Maybe she's been having sexual relationships with many different men. And if that was the context then Jesus might have all sorts of legal background to draw from, not least of which would be this passage from the book of Leviticus, where the Old Testament law says pretty clearly, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Okay, So Jesus is having a conversation. And it may be that this is a time where Jesus, who along with the history of God's people is committed to justice, and this may be a time where Jesus says, 
I need to point out the moral failure in this woman's life. Yes, she's not a Jew, but I still believe that God's ways are good ways. So Jesus could turn to the law to point out this woman's transgressions. In fact, as a rabbi, he would be in keeping with much rabbinic tradition. There's actually pages upon pages of rabbinic literature that talks not just about laws like this, but also about the right and specific ways to carry them out. It gets a little gruesome. Okay, that's one possible background. But there's another possible background, because this woman even identified Jesus as a prophet, and so Jesus could hold the Old Testament prophetic writings as background. And the prophetic writings are committed to justice, to seeing God's justice made real in our world. We see it all over the place. One of possibly the most famous comes from the Old Testament prophet Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. The prophet Micah writes, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Or again, the verse we read before, Amos chapter 5, verse 24 says, But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. In fact, the prophets don't just talk about justice, they instruct God's people to live just lives, to live on behalf of justice. Here's the very beginning of the prophet Isaiah telling God's people this very thing. Isaiah tells God's people, learn to do right. Seek justice. Or again, in the same vein, the prophet Jeremiah contrasts right behavior with wrong behavior. And he says, we know the wrong or the evil people because their evil deeds have no limit. They do not seek justice. But here's the really interesting thing about the prophets. Yes, they speak about justice and they say justice should roll down and we should live justly, but they also paint many pictures of justice. Immediately after Isaiah gave us the instruction, learn to do what is right, he painted a picture of that. He said, and here's what justice looks like. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Or again, in contrast, when Jeremiah is describing unjust behavior. He says that the evil person, the unjust person, their evil deeds have no limit. They do not seek justice. They do not promote the case of the fatherless. They do not defend the just cause of the poor. Sure enough, throughout the prophetic writings, there's a refrain that happens over and over again to talk about the people who are most vulnerable in the world for whom justice demands we care for. The refrain that you'll see if you read it is the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. These are the people that justice says we care for. 
So according to the prophets, justice is about how we treat those with the least, who are the most vulnerable in our world. And in fact, many people have observed that whereas this woman Jesus is speaking with, she may be an adulterous woman. She may be somebody who has been, you know, seen significant moral transgression. It may also be, it may also be even more likely that in a very patriarchal society like the one she lived in, she was not in the wrong, but maybe she had actually been abused. Maybe she had been discarded like property by five different men over and over. Maybe this woman was a woman who had suffered from injustice worked against her. And if that was the case, then maybe Jesus' response as a prophet should be to stand up and fight for her and defend her and say, who has done you wrong? I will stand up and condemn those wrongdoers. But it turns out that the Old Testament law, it turns out that the Old Testament prophetic writing, neither of them completely predict what Jesus actually says to this woman. We're going to go back to the text now, and remember, we've talked about Jesus saying he has water that will quench thirst forever. The woman has acknowledged that she has had five and maybe even more husbands, or maybe she's been with these men, or maybe she's been mistreated by these men. And then she asks him about proper religious practice and how to truly worship God. And here is how Jesus responds. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I want to propose this. Based on the way Jesus chooses to respond to this woman, based on all the things he could have chosen to lean into, and the fact that instead he takes this opportunity, speaking with somebody that he should have never been speaking to, speaking in a context that represented a massively broken relationship between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people, speaking in a context where moral failure or systemic injustice could have been in view. Instead, Jesus chooses this moment to talk about how this woman can have a right relationship with God. I want to suggest that based on Jesus' actions, we might learn that the essence of justice is found in reconciliation between God and his people. Yes, 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 laws matter. Crime and punishment and right and wrong matter. Yes, of course, defending the least of these matters so much. 
But the only way those are going to be fulfilled is when people are united in a right relationship with the God who made them. Which means, if we are people formed into the character of justice, it means we are people committed to seeing reconciliation. Committed to, yes, reducing wrongdoing and uplifting rightdoing. Yes, fighting for those who don't have the strength or power to fight for themselves, but through it all committing most to taking parties that are broken, separated, whose relationships are fractured, and seeing them brought back together. And sure enough, that is the point that the story ends with, because what happens is the woman apparently places her faith in Jesus in this moment. This woman apparently recognizing she's talking to God himself on earth decides to follow Jesus and goes back to her town. A woman who by any estimation has difficult relationships with all the people in her town because of this challenging background, whatever it is, whether she's an adulterous woman or whether she has been systemically abused, she clearly is on the outside of her society, but she goes back and tells people about this conversation she had, and she tells them about what she's heard in such a compelling way that many people in her town come to believe in Jesus. They leave their town, and they come out, and they say, Jesus, tell us more about this. I mean, what a beautiful image of no matter how broken our stories might be, God wants to use them to bring his reconciliation to people. And so then Jesus speaks with the people of the town And what they first heard from the woman, they now hear from Jesus so compellingly that the people in the city say to Jesus, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. I think the point of this whole story of Jesus' conversation with a Samaritan woman is that at his heart, Jesus, the prophet, Jesus, the man who is doing God's work in this world, at his heart, his desire as it pertains to justice, Jesus' desire was to draw as many people as possible into a right relationship with God. And that right relationship with God is the critical foundation for any and every application of justice in our world. In fact, Jesus said this time and time and time again. One of the ways he specifically talked about his relationship to the law and the prophets made it abundantly clear. He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. As we think about justice, And as we consider that maybe in our own hearts and in our own minds, when we think about the word justice, we might think about laws and crimes and punishment. When we think about justice, and we might think about fighting on behalf of the least of these in this world. Realize that both of those are good background, but Jesus always wants to do something more than that in our lives and through our lives. One of the other most beautiful pictures of this comes from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus was telling one of his parables and in this parable, he paints a picture of what it looks like to live a life 
of justice. The parable is a story of a king who's talking to some of his servants. And in this parable, God is the king, and his servants are us, you and me, any of God's people. And here's what the king says to his servants. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. In this parable, as well as in so many parables, Jesus is talking about the idea, the reality, the truth that captures this big, beautiful vision of justice that Jesus is presenting in his life and wants you and I to live in our lives. He's got a catchphrase for it. He refers to it as the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is anywhere and everywhere on this earth earth, when God's desires and God's goodness are made real in our lives, and in our midst. So let me summarize this way as we answer one more time our first question. What is justice? I think we could summarize it by saying this. Justice is a commitment to restore God's creation to God's intention. I wonder... Where is it in your life that when you look around, whether inside your own heart and mind or in the world around you, where is it that you look around and you just say, oh, this can't be the way it was supposed to be. The brokenness that I see is clearly not what God wants. Every time we see that, God wants to form us into the sorts of people who say, and therefore, God, I'm going to do something to work to heal the brokenness that I see around me. Which brings us to our second question, which is a heavy question of why does justice matter? And in some ways, I I maybe even don't need to answer the question because the answer is just so abundantly clear in our lives. But the simple answer is justice matters because our world is filled with injustice. We look around and we see so much brokenness in so many ways. We see it locally in in all sorts of the challenging decisions that have to be made uh, in our lives and in our world around us. We see it nationally in uh, political realms and in uh, economic and industrial realms. We see it morally in all sorts of ways that people make the types of decisions that just hurt and harm one another. When we interact with the pain of injustice in our world, whether on an interpersonal level or on a global systemic level, we might have all sorts of questions that we ask. We might see things around us and we say, was that a just decision? We see decisions being made and we have to wonder, is that right? Or we see brokenness on such a grand scale, it's overwhelming. We maybe cry out to God, we say, how can we ever find justice? I think particularly of our nation's history in dealing with the injustice of slavery. Uh, 
Slavery was a significant part of the founding of our nation. And yes, our country has done great things to fight against and try to stop slavery. The 13th Amendment, one of the few amendments to the Constitution that applies to every citizen, no matter what, that abolished slavery. And yet, we know that slavery continues to be an injustice. Millions, well over a million people trafficked every single year, hundreds of thousands in our country. And what's really tragic is hundreds of thousands that are young girls being trafficked for sex slavery in our country. How can we find justice when we see such brokenness being perpetrated around us? And then, of course, when we see these injustices played out, I think of uh, my home state of Minneapolis, uh, or my home state of Minnesota in Minneapolis, where um, the police officer who killed George Floyd was now convicted And whereas some Christians are celebrating that as evidence of God's justice, others are lamenting that maybe it wasn't an execution of justice. And that's just one of many examples of both police officers killing citizens and then citizens killing police officers and wrongdoing being perpetrated in so many different ways. And Christians seem to even have a hard time deciding what is or isn't justice We ask ourselves, what is the Bible's vision of justice? How do we apply what we see in Scripture to our world? Why does justice matter? Because the injustice is so heavy. Because the questions are so critical. Because the conversations are just so complicated. And we need to engage them for the sake of those who are hurting. Why does justice matter? Because our world is filled with injustices. Because God is just and wants us to be formed in his justice. Because God cares about those hurt by injustice. And God created us to be just. To fight on behalf of those who are hurting. To live upright moral lives that create justice. And to ultimately bring reconciliation and restoration to all that is hurting and broken in this world. Which brings us, as always, and I recognize that it might be particularly heavy for us on this topic, it brings us always to the question of what's your move and what's my move going to be? It brings us to the question of how do we form justice in our lives? I'm going to suggest a bunch of ways because I think this is a topic that I just couldn't get myself to pick like one or two things. I want to give you a bunch of resources so that anybody and everybody who feels God calling right now to say, you know what, I see this in Scripture. I see this as God's heart. I want to go further in this. I want all of us to have a way we can respond right now in our lives. But also, I just want to let you know, and I'm going to send out an email this afternoon with a PDF to it. I made a little card with all of the information that I'm going to put on the screen. I put it on this card. I'll send it out in an email. It'll be here in person if you come and worship with us in person in the next few weeks. And this card is an invitation to answer this question of how do we form justice. Here's some of the ways I think we could form justice. First, read the prophets. If you haven't spent much time in the Old Testament prophetic literature, read the prophets and catch a vision of God's heart for justice in this world, fought and created for by his people. 
Second thing you can do, you can always be learning more. Learn about injustice. One of the ways to become more committed to fighting for justice is to learn about injustice. Our denomination, the group of churches that we do ministry with, the Evangelical Covenant Church, we have an entire department in our national organization called Love, Mercy, Do Justice. If you want to learn more, go to covchurch.org slash LMDJ, Love, Mercy, Do Justice. They have a brand new initiative that is all about educating people and proactively working against sex trafficking in the United States. It's called free. You can go to covchurch.org slash free. Or there's an organization that the Covenant Church has partnered with in many ways that I've got friends that work with called the International Justice Mission, IJM.org. And encourage you to go visit their website. But in any of these things, you can learn about injustice in order to become more formed into people of justice. Third, of course, you can take action and you can engage in the work of justice. I want to mention just three ministries that this church, Centennial Covenant, has worked with for many, many years. Youth for Christ, working particularly with teen moms who are often in that situation because of some form of abuse or injustice that has been worked against them. Friends for Youth, an organization that seeks to get mentors for young people who are really hurting and suffering in their lives. Uh, There's an individual in our congregation, he's named Carl Bruce, and he's the chairman of the board for Friends for Youth. And our ministry partner, whom every time you financially support this church, a certain percentage goes to Jill Meyer, who works with Youth for Christ. And then a third organization, it's called Master's Apprentice. They're not a formal ministry partner of ours, but we've got uh, a number of people in the church who work with them. They provide vocational training courses to help people get jobs in technical fields, in construction or plumbing or as an electrician. And many of the students that go through Master's Apprentice are students who traditional educational systems simply did not effectively launch them into their careers. So Master's Apprentice comes alongside them and helps them get into stable job environments. There's actually a brand new program Master's Apprentice has been doing that I've had the privilege of getting to connect with a little. Um, They were approached as an organization by the State Penitentiary of Colorado, the highest security state prison in our state. And that prison invited Master's Apprentice to offer one of their courses to a group of six inmates who are about to be paroled. And I learned, it's kind of interesting, I didn't know this, but it's very rare that anybody gets paroled directly out of this high-security state prison. Usually, based on good behavior, they get transferred to a lower-security and then a lower-security prison, and they're eventually transferred out of there. But this group of six inmates because of their good behavior, is being given the opportunity to get paroled straight out of a high-security prison. And they asked Master's Apprentice to provide these job skills training for these men with the hope that they would walk out and have a job waiting for them, which is one of the best ways to help them find a new and healthy life once they get out. I had the really awesome opportunity of getting to... um, 
do morning devotions with them. Uh, Myself and David Dillon, worship pastor, we've been doing tag-teaming morning devos with these guys over Zoom four days a week. And I'll be honest, I mean, as I talk about what it means to learn about injustice and engage in the work of justice and fight for those who are hurting, as Jesus said, visiting those who are in prison, I'll confess, I went into my first morning of doing morning devotions with these guys a little bit nervous. I haven't interacted, I don't think at all, with people in a prison, who are in prison, especially not people who are in a high security prison like this. And I'll also confess, I had to grapple with the images in my head and the biases or the preconceptions I had in my heart about what this was going to be like. And then, of course, I was self-conscious because I like to tell stories about my childhood at, you know, summer camp in northern Minnesota and playing capture the flag and running around. And I had to wonder to myself, are any of my stories going to resonate with these guys? And then, of course, as the guys are introducing themselves, one of the guys stands up and every inch of skin I can see on his body is covered in tattoos. And I just am like, oh, what is going to happen? But then I hear this guy say, I didn't know there was going to be a pastor here. I'm super into the Bible, and I'm so glad that we get to do these devotions together. And another guy named Ricardo says, hey, pastor, is there any way that I can stay in communication with you after I get out? Maybe even visit your church. And I thought, oh my gosh, all of these fears or concerns or biases I had in my heart were just washed away as I met these delightful guys who were glad to be reading God's word together. And I thought if we just will listen to the opportunities God puts in front of us, oh, what great experiences we can have. Which brings me to the next two specific opportunities. If you're like, I want to do something and I want to do specific and concrete, you can take a specific next step. There are two experiences that our denomination puts on every year And there's two coming up, one in the fall and one in early 2020. So put these on your calendar. They're a long ways away. One is called Sankofa and one is called Journey to Mosaic. Both of these are community experiences where you travel to historic sites where grave injustices have happened in our country and in our state. And you process and learn about and engage and experience what happened while sharing that with people from a variety of ethnic backgrounds. If you want to learn more, uh, again, I'll send this information out, but you can send an email to our conference offices and get your name put on the list for these experiences coming up a long ways from now. And again, we'll be talking about it more, but maybe you'll just write these dates, put a reminder in your calendar right now to consider one of these concrete things you can do coming up in the future to be more formed into people committed to justice. But let me wrap that all up and invite the worship team to come back up by saying, as I've been saying every week, the way we're formed in our character, day in, day out, no matter what character formation we want, no matter what kind of character, the way we must always be formed is by committing ourselves daily. And maybe even more daily, maybe committing ourselves to every moment of every day to being people of prayer. And if you want to pray, you might pray this simple prayer with me. And would you even pray with me right now? God, give me a heart for your 
justice. God, we confess that the injustice we see in the world, the brokenness we see on the interpersonal level, around our city or around our state or around our nation, the injustices are just so heavy. And the complexity of understanding them feels beyond us. But God, we know that you are a God of justice. Desiring to make whole and make right to restore and reconcile all brokenness in our lives and in the world in which we live. So God, use us for those purposes, we pray. And as always, we pray these things, not because we deserve to have our prayers heard, but because we pray in the name of Jesus. Because you told us, Lord, to bring all of our burdens, all of our lives, everything in our hearts, to bring it all and lay it at your feet. And so it is in your name, Jesus, we pray. The name that is above every name, who can and will overcome all the brokenness we see in our world. Amen.